Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Ever wonder what it's like to have brain surgery while wide awake? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. All right, welcome back to Myth vs. Medicine. Hi, guys. Olivia, any fun medical stories this week? How are you doing? Medical stories. Oh, gosh. No medical stories, but it's cold, cold, cold outside. So It is so cold. Yeah, in Ann Arbor right now, the wind chill's up to negative 25. So it has been a great day to stay indoors. Yes. It's brutal out there. Great day to record a podcast. Yes, I hope you guys have been staying warm. Anna, how about you? What have you been doing with your week? Also, staying inside, staying warm. Just found out I passed step one, so I'm studying for step two now. (laughs) Crazy times. It is crazy times. And during these crazy times, we like to podcast, so. Oh, yes. Honestly, this is one of my favorite things. I've been doing lots of PR and editing, and I feel like Myth versus Medicine is my happy place. It's so fun. I love it. And we love bringing all this content to you guys. We're so happy that you're here. Yes. All right, with that said, do you want to give us our episode summary? Sure will. So this episode begins by showing Meredith, who is hesitant to interact with Derek after they had been caught by Bailey having sex in their car. We also see Christina and Dr. Burke, who are now sleeping together in the call room. And then throughout the episode, we see Meredith caring for a patient with Parkinson's disease and Izzy taking care of a patient post-cardiac surgery who she eventually has to take emergent action to save. Meanwhile, Alex is caring for a patient with a massive tumor and unknowingly offends her and loses her trust. All of the surgeons at Seattle Grace have to work together to operate on this patient and they face several ethical dilemmas and we end up learning a lot about barriers that people might have to receiving proper health care. I love that summary and I'm honestly so excited to talk about all the different things in this episode because I feel like there were a lot. There was a lot of new topics that we haven't gotten to talk to you guys about yet and also a lot of great recurring themes. Oh my gosh, yes. We're so excited to update you on all of our counts. <laughs> So, all right, before we get into it, I know we had a donation, so we are going to do a shout out. We did. Thank you, Scylla, for donating to Myth vs. Medicine. We are so excited now that the podcast is out in the world to have all of you guys starting to interact with us. And if you're enjoying the podcast and want to support us in other ways, we love any interaction that we can get. We appreciate all donations, and you can do all of this from our website. And that's at Myth vsmedpod.com. All right, with that said, should we get into our quick catches for the week? We should. And on that note, we also have our very first listener quick catch, which is very exciting. I'm so excited. Yeah, thank you, Lisa, for giving us this quick catch. And I thought it was a really great one. And I'm surprised that we hadn't thought of this yet because it's so true. And we see it quite a bit in this episode. So this listener basically said, I've gotten lots of CT scans before and I've never gotten a CT where my doctor is there and waiting on the other side of the glass wall to read Mm -hmm. my scan. That's just never happened. And this listener was wondering if we had ever seen that happen. And my answer for the vast majority of cases is no. (laughs) I don't know about you, Olivia. (laughs) Yeah, the only time I've ever seen it is during our stroke service, so on neurology service, when someone comes in with a suspected stroke and they need to go get imaging, usually the team of doctors will sit back in the CT room to make sure that they can see the image as fast as possible because they want to make sure they can act as quick as possible. I'm assuming that's probably what you've seen too. Yeah, exactly. That was yeah. my one exception is yeah. stroke codes move very quickly. doctors you're basically doing an exam on the patient in the elevator down to ct and then as soon as the ct image is up you want to read it and start treating in whatever way you need to but otherwise if you get a ct there's probably just a tech there and doctors for sure don't have time to go down and sit to watch every 
CT that patients get. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, it seems that the doctors on Grey's Anatomy have this excess of time. They're just frolicking around. It's a great time to be a doctor at Seattle Grace. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Thank you so much, Lisa, for that quick catch. And we hope that every one of you listeners, if you guys see something that you want to know about, please let us know. And we're excited to talk about it here on the podcast. Please do. You can visit the Ask Us a Question page on our website as well to submit your quick catch or question for us. Awesome. All right. So my next quick catch is the parking, the beginning of the episode. So Meredith and Derek are shown driving up. They meet each other at the hospital at the same exact time, same exact spot. They literally park right next to each other. And then we come to find out that their parking is literally right next to the hospital entrance, maybe 100 yards away. (laughs) And I wrote down, I said, wow, that's golden. Could it be Michigan? Michigan medicine is notorious for just really horrendous parking. There's just not a lot of room. And you have to park ways away in order to get to work sometimes. A lot of the residents don't even get a parking spot. Like, they just are not even allowed to park at the hospital because there's so little room. And also, even if there was room for everyone, I think that generally there is different priority of parking at hospitals and places like this. So Uh maybe Derek would have that good of a parking spot, but there's no way that Meredith and Derek have the same but i saw that and i was very i was very jealous (laughs) all right what's your next one i'd like to bring up our scrub count yes this is one of my favorite segments so tell us what you saw in this episode so there was one scene where i saw people scrubbing in at the time we saw christina george and burke all scrubbing both christina and george did a really good job like we've previously talked about letting the water drip away from their hands so they're holding their hands up vertically so that the water drips down and you keep your hands as the cleanest part of your body mm-hmm. burke on the other hand he is rinsing the bubbles off his hands and he has his arms just straight out and then he kind of bends his hands down and he just lets the water all drip down towards his hands and he totally does not follow protocol for his rinsing but i said at least he walks away with his arms up But in the end, I would still rate this as good scrubs for Christina and George, bad scrub for Burke. Yes, we love it when the interns do better scrubbing than the attendings. There you go. (laughs) So far, I think that is pretty consistent. Actually, Derek had one good scrub. He did. Our Our bad scrubs so far are Burke and Weber. It's true. Speaking of the surgeries, so we see this big tumor surgery at the end of the episode, and guess who is wearing eye protection? I'll give you a hint. It's the same as every other episode. (laughs) It's everyone. Not one single person is wearing eye protection. Not one. And blood is going everywhere. If there was a surgery where you would want to wear face protection and eye protection, I'm assuming it would be this one. (laughs) It's so funny, too, that it's so inconsistent, because it would be one thing if in all of the episodes nobody ever wore goggles and it just wasn't a part of their costumes but clearly they have goggles that are a part of the costumes because they wear them sometimes so i'm not really sure why they sometimes wear them and sometimes don't yeah i was watching this with my boyfriend brandon and he looks at me he goes maybe they just don't wear the goggles because they need to see their acting in their eyes you know you need to see their eye (laughs) expressions you really need to see what they're feeling (laughs) the eyes are the window to the soul that's what i've heard they are they are so maybe that's why (laughs) so funny This next one that I have is actually not a medical quick catch, but it was one of my favorite moments of the whole episode. And this is the scene where Bailey and Derek are in the elevator. And Bailey is clearly just furious about this whole situation with Meredith and Derek. Mm -hmm. And Derek says, Miranda, just kind of addressing her. And Miranda says to him, (laughs) excuse me, all sassy. And Derek, with like the most genuine expression, goes, well, that's your name, right? It's on your jacket okay, fine, I'll just call you Bailey then. And Bailey, during this, she comes back at Derek with this whole sassy speech about how he's not so charming and he's not blah, 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 blah. But when he said that to her, she totally cracks a smile. Like, you just see her kind of grin. And I'm thinking, Bailey, yes, he is that charming. You can't fool us. (laughs) But of course, he's McDreamy after all. Miranda. Excuse me. Well, that's your name, right? It's on your jacket. Fine, I'll just call you Bailey then. You think you're charming and that talented, neurotic, overly moose hair sort of way good for you. But if you think I'm going to stand back and watch while you favor her... I don't favor her. She's good. She is. Oh, McDreamy. Oh, gosh. Speaking of McDreamy, can we talk about the chest compressions that he ended up doing? Oh, they were bad. They were bad. And I mean, clearly he was fatiguing. And the thing is, normally you would do chest compressions for a while before you 
call the death. And they didn't really do that. But Derek, pretty quickly, you see him just getting really tired doing compressions and he's not mm-hmm. doing them evenly and he's yeah. not putting much force into it right and it is very important when you're doing cpr especially when you're doing cpr in a room full of people that mm-hmm. you are switching people out if you are doing yeah. chest compressions and you're getting tired you switch so that somebody can yeah. continue to do good chest compressions yeah definitely so something we thought would be a fun little discussion here is in doing a good chest compression you want to make sure you're doing the right number of compressions per minute. And so there are certain songs that are good songs to keep the beat of your chest compressions, to make sure that you're doing enough and not too many. Yes. The classic one that I've heard of is Staying Alive. So you're as oh, you're compressing, yeah. you're kind of like, Staying Alive. Oh, staying Alive. <laughs> do you have one that you've heard a lot, Olivia? You can also do Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and I just really like that song. I like that one too. That is a good one. If we have any Swifties listening to the pod, I actually just saw an article recently that said a new song has been added to the list of good beat-keeping songs for chest compressions, and it is The Man by Taylor Swift. Oh my gosh. So now all you Swifties out there can also save lives. Swifties save lives too. Okay, one of my favorite ones that I didn't know was a song that you could do chest compressions to. If you're not tired of <laughs> oh, no. the song already, oh no, you can also use it for chest compressions. <laughs> it's called The Baby Shark Song. <laughs> Wait, no way. Wait, that... Oh. Right? It's actually very good. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I was both so happy and then horrified i said oh gosh no not another reason for me to have this song stuck in my head yeah what is your next quick catch okay so my next quick catch is actually something that i didn't notice at first and then i was rewinding for a different reason and then saw this later so when alex first walks into the gallery of the big tumor case that they're doing he's talking to another intern the intern saying oh gosh george and christina have been retracting for hours and hours and you can see in the background that they are kind of stuck to this lady just holding this tumor, just really rigid positions. And you can tell that they're kind of regretting their decision to want to be a part of the surgery now. They're like, oh, oh my yes. God, why did I decide that I wanted to do this? But anyway, so they're shown in the background holding this really rigid position, indicating that they haven't moved in hours. Yeah. And then in the next scene, Alex is talking to another intern, and you can literally see George moving around, walking around in the OR. No way. Below. So he was not holding the tumor. <gasps> what? That's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. All right. Did you have any more quick catches? I did. This one was also funny. So during the surgery, they're running out of blood and Alex decides to take it upon himself to go retrieve the blood himself. And he runs down to the blood bank. He's sprinting and he sees somebody carrying blood and he goes, is that O negative for OR1? I got it. I got it. And he takes (laughs) the blood bags. And first of all, there's very specific protocol for Uh blood transfusions and making sure that you have the right blood for the right patients because you can kill somebody pretty quickly by transfusing them with the wrong blood type. Uh, Nobody would ever just hand off the blood like that. Alex can't just take that and go. I got it. No worries. No worries. Can we talk about his run? Well, this is my other quick catch, which is that we then see him sprinting away and you see his arms swinging and his hands out as he's sprinting back to the OR. He's not carrying anything. Oh my gosh. Wait, no way. I definitely thought he was carrying the blood. And I just thought that his run looked ridiculous. That's what I wanted to talk about. I said he looks like he's just clobbering down the hallway. I tried a bunch of times to pause it with each of his hands out towards the back so you could see the hands. Oh my gosh. Unless the blood bags were so small that they could fit into his closed hands, he wasn't carrying anything. Although then when he gets to the OR, we see him and he is carrying two tiny little blood bags. Teeny tiny. Clearly, this patient needed a lot of blood. And I know that they were maybe having some kind of shortage, but I don't know that they even make blood bags that small. Why would they have such small blood bags? Crazy. Yes, it is. All right. My last quick catch that I had for this episode actually is a recurring quick catch that we've seen in other episodes as well. In the middle of the episode, they are actually all having lunch together outdoors. and Again. Again. All at the same exact time. Seems they Gosh. all have the same break. This was my favorite Well, one of my favorite quotes. There were a lot of good quotes in this episode, actually. There were. So Alex comes and sits down next to Christina and says, is it true that you get to scrub in on this surgery? And Christina just looks at him and goes, don't sit here. Like no response, but just you're not allowed to sit here. Is it true you get to scrub in on that tumor? Don't sit here. (laughs) 
so brutal. So funny. Oh my gosh. I mean, Alex had been being pretty obnoxious as usual. I think on this note, I just want to bring up one more conversation that happened at this lunch table. Oh, I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> this was George being the most awkward man alive. Well, bad days are bad. Maybe tonight, uh, if you, you know, if you drink alcohol, I mean, we could, all of us, I mean, go out and drink alcohol you know, because of the bad day. Oh my God. Oh, George. Oh, sweet little George who has no idea how to ask oh. a girl out. In this single sentence, he said either, you know, or I mean five times. Well, Georgie, he yeah. can't help it. He's just so nervous. So nervous. <laughs> and we also see him trying to bring Meredith coffee at some point. He spills the coffee on himself. <laughs> he's just, he's, he's not having a great time. Buddy. On that note, shall we get into our first topic? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what it is, Olivia. So our first topic is going to be based around the patient that came in with dyskinesia, or the elderly man who was having the shaking of his limbs. Yeah, what does dyskinesia mean? Big word. So dyskinesia is a blanket term that describes some kind of involuntary and uncontrollable movement. It often appears as uncontrollable shakes, tics, or tremors. You can see kind of fidgeting, wriggling, swaying of the body, bobbing of the head, twitching, restlessness. So there are lots of different ways that it manifests. And in this episode, all we hear from Izzy is that this patient's coming in for pain control for dyskinesia and that he's responded well to bolus injections. Now, Anna, what are these bolus injections? <laughs> That's what I wrote down! If they are some kind of like pain medication, that would make sense. But she doesn't say anything. <laughs> That's the thing. Even if the resident on the team knows what medications a patient is getting the whole mm -hmm. point of giving a presentation is to remind everyone on the team this is why the patient's here this is what happened since we last saw them this is how we're treating them yes in my opinion her saying bolus injections was probably because she didn't know and or the writers of the show didn't know what exactly. said bolus injections were yes so here derek says how do you want to treat him izzy says his Parkinson's, and Derek says, no, his spinal pain. And then Meredith interjects. Ooh, and then you can see Bailey's face. I wrote here, I don't think that Meredith did anything wrong. So for context, yeah, basically, Izzy gave the wrong answer, and mm -hmm. then Derek looked to the group, and Meredith said the right answer. Yeah. Which is something this that is very we common. have seen in previous episodes, even with Bailey before, is someone yeah. says the wrong answer, somebody says the right answer. And yeah. the person who says the right answer gets to scrub in on the surgery. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's kind of how it works. If someone on the team doesn't know something, it's kind of punted to the rest of the group and saying, okay, who has an idea or who has an answer? Totally. Yeah, and I mean, who gets to scrub in on the surgery is a little harsh, but I mean, yeah. that is something yeah. we see in Grey's Anatomy all the time. Yeah, yeah. They need to make it as dramatic as possible. For sure. And I wrote just kind of from an ethical standpoint, that I thought that Bailey was being super unfair to Meredith. Yeah, for knowing the correct answer. <laughs> right. She has several times changed who was going to be on her surgery because one person knew the answer and somebody else didn't. Exactly. And then when Derek does this, because Meredith got the answer right, suddenly that's preferential treatment. Only because they've slept together. Yes. Right. Well, Bailey yes. clearly has this bias about this that we will talk plenty more about. Yes, we will. All right, let's get back to dyskinesia. Olivia, what did you want to talk about with this? So I thought it would be good to talk about the causes of dyskinesia because dyskinesia, like I said, is a big blanket term. So when you see it, it's not automatically, oh, this patient has this underlying disease. It can be caused mm -hmm. by a lot of different things. In terms of this episode, we see it in a patient who has Parkinson's disease. And it's not from the Parkinson's itself, but it's from taking this medication called levodopa for a really long period of time. So mm -hmm. levodopa basically increases the level of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain. And people with Parkinson's lack these dopamine-producing brain cells, and so they're given this medication to replace that. So if your dopamines fluctuate, they're going really high and really low, and that can happen when you're taking different doses of this levodopa. Those variations in the dopamine levels can cause these involuntary movements of dyskinesia. I think that's a really important clarification that Olivia just made, because... Many of you may know that Parkinson's is a movement disorder, and I think that a pretty characteristic finding in Parkinson's that people often think about is having a tremor. There's a difference between the movement symptoms that are caused by Parkinson's itself and the movement symptoms that are caused by the drugs that you take mm -hmm. to treat Parkinson's. And because yeah. they're all movement effects, this can get confusing. 
it can definitely get confusing. And so that tremor that Anna was talking about is more related to the Parkinson's itself, whereas the dyskinesia that we're talking about now is usually from your medication that you're taking for the Parkinson's. Right. So another cause of dyskinesia that's actually drug-induced is in people who are taking antipsychotic medications. So this is typically referred to as tardive dyskinesia, and that's just to differentiate it from the other types of dyskinesia that we talk about. Yeah, and tardive dyskinesia, you can also see some like particular characteristic types of dyskinesia so you often will see facial twitching or kind of movements of the tongue kind of smacking your lips these are all things that are pretty specific to this type of dyskinesia definitely and I don't know about you Anna but once I saw tardive dyskinesia for the first time it kind of stuck in my head as the signs to look out for in everyone taking antipsychotic medications yeah because again like you said they're very specific for this type of dyskinesia in terms of other causes And these are probably a little bit less common, but sometimes you see dyskinesias in people with substance use and then Mm. in people who have had strokes or cancer in the brain. So a lot of neurologic causes. And so that's where Derek Shepard comes in. But in this patient in particular, they're talking about different treatment options. And Mm -hmm. so treatment options for dyskinesia, they vary from person to person. And it's really a collaborative conversation with your doctor, really focusing on what symptoms you can live with, what medication you actually want to be taking and there's lots of different things that go into that so it's very nuanced but in Parkinson's in particular usually if the dyskinesia is caused by the medication levodopa that you're taking you usually adjust that dose in some kind of way to avoid those large fluctuations in the amount of dopamine Mm -hmm. in your system. That's a little bit about the medications and in this episode we obviously see a whole ethical insanity yes (laughs) over whether or not this man is going to have this deep brain stimulation surgery, or DBS. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Olivia? Yeah, I'd love to. So Meredith says, oh, I wonder if he's a candidate for DBS surgery, and that's deep brain stimulation surgery. It's a surgical treatment for severe symptoms. So this patient would technically qualify for that based on the fact that he's having these movements that have not been controlled with medication. And so Derek also points out that once your Parkinson's progresses to dementia, you'll no longer be a candidate for DBS. And so there's this question of, okay, if he's going to do it, he needs to do it now. And so I think one important thing to touch on with Parkinson's is that it starts with abnormal movements, and then you start having decline in your cognitive function, so progressing more toward that dementia. But what Derek is saying is, again, once your Parkinson's progresses to dementia, you won't be a candidate for this type of surgery. And I was confused by this, so I looked this up. But what I found was that deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease patients who have some type of dementia is generally contraindicated, Mm -hmm. but it's still frequently performed in people with mild cognitive impairment or normal cognition. And so in this case, this patient would be a candidate for it. I also went and fact-checked Derek on this Mm because nobody's to be trusted in Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) And Derek has said some skeptically non-neuroscientific things recently. Yes, yes. So yes, so as Olivia said, he was right in saying that he wouldn't be a candidate if he progressed to dementia. However, I did find a couple sources that said that one of the factors that would make somebody a less than ideal candidate for DBS is actually Mm -hmm. difficulty with balance or walking as their main disabling symptom. And in this episode, Mm -hmm. clearly this man has many symptoms, but the whole storyline is that his daughter wants him to be able to walk her down the aisle for her wedding and that he is unable to do that. So in reality, I don't know if he actually would have been a good candidate given his Mm -hmm. issues with balance and walking. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We can also touch a little bit on the risks of the surgery because Derek also talks about this and kind of discussing it with the patient and seeing if it's really worth it for him to do. Again, the surgery is done with the person awake, and I think this can be really daunting for a lot of the patients to think about having brain surgery being done while you're awake. I know that it would definitely give me some pause even. (laughs) I would be like, what? You want to cut into my brain while I'm awake? What? But it is necessary for the type of procedure that they're doing. Right. Derek says that there's risk of paralysis and risk of death. And I was, again, not completely trusting of what Derek said because paralysis seems like a really far stretch 
for this surgery where you put a little wire into the brain. Yeah, a little wire. It's just, it seemed a little far-fetched. So the biggest risks of this surgery, like any surgery, are bleeding and infection. But with this surgery in particular, what you're worried about are new seizures that you can get or strokes. Those were really the biggest risks that I found of this procedure, not paralysis or death. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, that sounds spot on. And in the same way that we talked about a couple episodes ago, memory loss, paralysis, death, and all of these things, of course, if you're going to have brain surgery, there's always a risk. But I don't know why Derek decides to sell these as the main risks. They picked the scariest ones and went with that for the show. Obviously. Then it wouldn't (laughs) be exciting. Of course, of course. So we see them go into the surgery. We see them having this patient sitting up a little bit in a chair. He has this contraption on his head that's meant to keep it still. And then you can see Derek with a monitor guiding a wire into the patient's brain, trying to target the part of the brain that is responsible for these movements. One quick catch that I actually had for this is, again, that contraption on their head is meant to keep it as still as possible because, as you can imagine... Someone putting a wire through your brain and trying to touch one very specific spot is difficult in and of itself, but then if you add on shaking movement, it makes it even more difficult. Yeah, you want to be very precise here. (laughs) Yes, and in this episode, we just see the head moving all over the place during the procedure. (laughs) Even though he had the head thing on. Yeah, I said obviously it wasn't screwed on or it wasn't tightened or something. It's funny that they used the head thing though, like they knew that was supposed to be there, but it just didn't serve its role. Yeah, exactly. Hilarious. And so at the end of the surgery, you see that Derek is successful in treating the movement disorder that this patient was suffering with. In terms of the success rate for a surgery like this, DBS will show an immediate reduction of levodopa-induced disabling dyskinesias in about 80% of patients that undergo the procedure. So it's honestly a pretty high success rate for these really disabling symptoms. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see in this episode that the daughter is really pining for her dad to be able to walk her down the aisle. And the only way to do this is to do a surgery like this. And so for this patient, it was really life-changing. Yeah, it was. I mean, on that note, should we talk about the fact that this patient really didn't want to have the surgery at the beginning of the episode? Yeah. We saw Meredith a couple episodes ago pushing a patient not to have surgery because of the impact of her current life and her concerns about their memory and her mom. In this episode, we have Meredith seeing this patient and seeing the patient's daughter, who she very much relates with. So now Mm -hmm. she's going to push this patient to have surgery, also still because of her mom. Yeah, all (laughs) in the context of that. And, you know, life is hard. People have their own personal things. But this is now the second time in a three-episode span that we see Meredith trying to pressure a patient to make one decision or another based on her personal Mm -hmm. life. Yeah, I'm almost wondering if it's because she sees this surgery as a real option for him to get better, but also I feel like she kind of guilt-shamed this patient into having the surgery because she goes, well, your daughter's still here and your daughter needs you and you Mm -hmm. need to be there for her type of thing. This is where this becomes really an actual ethical dilemma and not just a clear-cut issue because Mm -hmm. the daughter actually comes up to Meredith and says can you please try to convince him to have this Mm -hmm. surgery I really Mm -hmm. want him to have this surgery and at this point the patient he's really not listening to his daughter when Mm -hmm. she suggests the surgery or most other doctors suggest the surgery he Mm -hmm. says why are you trying to force me to do this I said I don't want to do this Mm -hmm. and so Meredith gets kind of wrapped up with this daughter who is asking her to talk to him And Mm -hmm. as we see in the end, this was a treatment that was beneficial for him. But the thing is, that doesn't always matter because this is where patient decision-making really comes into play. And you do have to respect the patient's desires. And whether it's the right thing for them or not, if this man doesn't want to have surgery, you can't force this man to have surgery. Exactly. And it sounds like it's been a recurrent discussion with a lot of his care providers and from the daughter's point of view she's saying I don't know why he's not doing it but from his point of view he's saying it's a really big surgery and I'm fine right now and I don't want to risk anything bad happening and so for the daughter to be taking such a hard stance on this it just feels like it's kind of undermining the patient's ability to make his own decision totally so I think We're just about ready to take our mid-episode break, but we'd like to give you our fun fact first, and we wanted to take this opportunity to introduce a brand new segment to the show that we are going to call Medical Vocabulary Word of the Week. I'm so excited for this. (laughs) 
So we have been trying to, as much as we can in this show, talk about medicine in a way that is understandable for people of all levels, not try to use too many big medical words. But sometimes mm. it can be fun to know what these really big, crazy medical words mean. So Exactly. Imagine going home to Thanksgiving with your family next year and <laughs> some fun medical vocabulary word, and they're just completely stunned. <laughs> so true. You're going to be the genius. <laughs> they don't even have to know what it means. Just It's a big word. What is the medical vocab word of the week then, Anna? The medical vocab word of the week is rum roll, please. Dysdiodocokinesia. That is a mouthful. Yes. Yes. Shall we break it down? So dysdiodocokinesia, which we also commonly refer to as DDK because it's easier to say, a lot of things in medicine are actually rooted in Greek or Latin. And so we thought it would be cool to talk about the actual breakdown of the word and what each part means. So starting with the first term, it's dis, which means inability to. Mm -hmm. And then diadokos is succeeding or succession. And what it's talking about in terms of rapid succession is alternating movement. So that's what brings us to the last part of the word, which is kinesis, and that means movement. So it means inability to have rapid succession of movement. So this is what we saw in that surgery. This patient is trying to imitate this movement to see if the deep brain stimulation is working, where Mm -hmm. he has to flip his hand one over the other in this rapid alternating movement. And this is the Mm -hmm. way that we generally test for dysdiodokokinesia. Now you guys know, one, a fun word, and two, what it means and how it relates to Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. All right, well, we have a really fun topic for you after the break, so we'll see you in a minute. Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or linktree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support the podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back, you guys. Anna is going to start us off in the second half of the episode with talking about our second topic. So do you want to get started? I would love to get started. We have a super fun game for you guys for our second topic. So we're going to be talking about this patient that Izzy's taking care of who has just undergone a coronary bypass surgery, which you learned all about from Olivia last week. And we are going to be talking through all of the decisions that Izzy makes medically and the things that she says. And you will have to guess what is myth and what is medicine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a quote from the show or some other thing that Izzy has done. And Olivia and all of you listeners at home, I want you to tell me myth or medicine. Alrighty. Okay, so let's get started. We are introduced to this patient. Izzy is presenting him. She says that he had a coronary bypass. Izzy presents some of these labs, and I want to know, myth or medicine, is this something that you would see after surgery, particularly in this post-coronary bypass? So she says, BP 70 over 30, but responded to meds, crit 30, normal coags. When they're talking about crit, they're talking about hematocrit. And 30 is pretty low, and the BP is also low. Normally, you wouldn't really expect this after a bypass. So I'm going to say myth. Yeah, so I thought it's a little bit of a myth. It's a little bit of a combination. This would not be a normal finding, but it wouldn't be unrealistic. Something that might cause these labs is if this patient may have lost a lot of blood during surgery. This is a reason both for having low blood pressure, but it's also a reason to have a low hematocrit. So a hematocrit is just a measure of how much hemoglobin is in your blood. As Olivia said, a hematocrit of 30 is pretty low. So this might be an indication that he does not have enough hemoglobin in his blood and he may have lost some blood. So next, Izzy says, chest tube output halted over the last two hours. And she explains that her plan for this is to get a chest x-ray and check the tube for possible occlusion. Myth or medicine? Medicine. Yes. So actually, Izzy's plan, I liked that she was going to get a chest x-ray because the chest tube is basically draining the fluid out of his lung that 
they were worried about. And when there's not output in a chest tube, you're worried that either there is occlusion, something is blocking the chest tube, or this chest tube might have ended up in the wrong place. That's why we would do a chest Mm x-ray. My problem with this was that Izzy said during rounds that they should check for occlusion. And to be honest, there are a lot of simple things that you can do to check for occlusion that Mm -hmm. I was not sure why Izzy hadn't already done. So for example, you can unkink the tube, make sure there's not anything physically blocking it that you can see. And then you can also irrigate or flush this tube with saline. And I'm not really sure what else she's referring to when she says check for occlusion that she couldn't have already done. So I wondered what she had been up to during pre-rounds that she yes. <laughs> was not sure whether or not the chest tube was occluded. And I feel like saying that the output is halted for the last two hours would raise more concern, especially after a big surgery like that. You're really worried about fluid buildup and things of that nature. So I feel like you would want to get this kind of resolved right away. Yeah, so I would call this statement a myth in the end because Izzy was not doing what she should have been doing to check on this patient. Hmm. So the next thing that we see during rounds is that Izzy gives this whole presentation and then the team begins to filter out of the room and we see the patient's wife standing in the corner. Bailey looks at him and says, he's doing fine. Myth or medicine? Absolutely myth. There we go. And why was this a myth? (laughs) Bailey, come on. Where are your communication skills? Right. There's a fine line between going too much into detail and then not enough detail with patients. But it's pretty blatantly obvious that Bailey should have said more than he's doing fine after a big surgery like this. Right. And the thing is, sometimes what we'll do is somebody will give a presentation And as they're presenting, they'll kind of explain to the family, this is what this means. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll give the whole presentation and then afterwards they'll give the family a little overview. These are the things that we just talked about in words that you can understand. And in this episode, we see all of the people on the team completely neglecting the wife of this patient who Mm -hmm. is clearly very concerned And nobody really ever explains to her what's going on. And she's just kind of standing there looking concerned. And they just keep on telling her, he's fine. He's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. The same thing happens a little bit later in the episode when Izzy is showing her chest films. She says all of this medical jargon. And she's Mm -hmm. standing there looking alarmed. And then all Izzy says is, which translates, he should be home in no time. And I wrote, why is nobody talking to this poor woman? I know, I know. Somebody needed to explain. You don't just say, oh, he'll be home soon. You tell them, this is what we're doing right now. These are our concerns. These are the things that are good. Mm -hmm. And if all of these things go well, then we'll get you home in X amount of time. Yeah, you don't just say, he'll be home in no time without any further explanation, especially in a patient's loved one where you can see that they're really concerned and aren't really understanding the full scope of what's been going on with the patient. I also thought it was funny in this because, one, Izzy puts this chest x-ray up for maybe five seconds and then takes it down. Yeah. And I think the reason that they did that was because Izzy says, we were able to relieve the obstruction of his chest tube, so the buildup of fluid you see here should be gone soon. Anna, where was the fluid on that x-ray? It was nowhere on the x-ray. There was no fluid. <laughs> so maybe that's the reason they put it up and then took it right back down. <laughs> I was going to say, that is that is one of my favorite little uh, myth versus medicine bits. Imaging that does not show what it's supposed to. Have we seen a single image that has shown us anything that it's supposed to yet? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> So take us through the rest of this patient's time in the hospital. Sure. As we progress through the episode, we have all of the attendings out operating on our other patients. So Bailey says to Alex and Izzy, basically, you are responsible for the patients on the floor while we are off operating. Try not to kill anyone. Myth Mm -hmm. or medicine? That is medicine. I would also call that medicine. And we've talked a little bit about this, that just as much of your job as a surgeon is taking care of patients on the floor as it is operating and for these interns who are not really qualified to do very much operating at this point oftentimes their attendings will be doing surgeries for most Mm -hmm. of the day and they will be taking care of the patients on the floor but when interns are tasked with taking care of patients on the floor they also have contact with the attendings if they really need them to come and help it's not like a do or die situation (laughs) this is true but we run into a do or die situation in this episode do we not we see this patient starting to crash and As he does, we hear somebody yell out, BP plummeted to 64 over 22. He's having runs of VTAC that aren't perfusing. CVP is sky high. Myth or medicine? I'm pretty sure that's medicine. That is, in fact, medicine. So we'll break these down a little bit for you. As we've mentioned before, 
standard blood pressure that we would say normal range is usually around 120 over 80. This is a very low blood pressure. We are very worried about this patient whose blood pressure is dropping. They say he's having runs of VTAC that aren't perfusing. So what that means is he's having a cardiac arrhythmia, so much so that his heart is not able to perfuse the organs in his body. So mm-hmm. blood pressure is low, organs are not getting blood. This is very bad. Mm-hmm. And then they say CVP is sky high. CVP stands for central venous pressure. And mm-hmm. this is just the measure of the pressure in one of the chambers of the heart. This is something that we see in what we later learn this patient is in cardiac tamponade, and we'll tell you more about that. But something that happens in cardiac tamponade is all of the heart pressures, which are usually different, all equalize. So that's kind of what they are meaning when they say the CVP is sky high. Mm -hmm. So these are all pretty good medical terminology to be yelling out during this situation. Yes. Next, we see Izzy, and she is in a panic trying to figure out what's happening with this guy. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And she asks, I think one of the nurses, does he have myocardial ischemia? And then the nurse says, no, it's a clot, a big one. Myth or medicine? (laughs) That would be a myth. Yeah. So the reason that I thought this was a myth and I thought was just a very funny conversation is that this would in fact be myocardial ischemia. The reason that a clot is dangerous is because it would cause ischemia. What is ischemia? That's a good question. Ischemia basically means you're cutting off the blood flow to something and that can lead Mm -hmm. the tissue to die. When someone has a heart attack, the primary concern is myocardial ischemia. It's that the Mm -hmm. tissue in your heart is dying. And there are a lot of things that can cause that. And one of those things is a clot. However, I thought it was pretty funny that this nurse was like, no, he doesn't have myocardial ischemia. He has a clot. Yes, yes. A big one. (laughs) A big one. Then he says, it's tamponade. You'll have to get the clot out. Myth or medicine? Medicine or myth? I don't know. This was a trick question. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) So technically, it is medicine. Mm -hmm. This is because it is possible for getting a blood clot in your heart to lead to cardiac tamponade. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. Cardiac tamponade is basically when you get a bunch of buildup of fluid surrounding your heart. And Mm -hmm. this fluid makes it difficult for your heart to beat properly. And this can lead to a specific type of shock called obstructive shock. And the labs that we were given earlier, like the low blood pressure and the cardiac arrhythmia and the increased right atrial pressure. These are things that we would expect to see in this situation. Mm -hmm. So my issue with this particular case is that they seem to imply that this patient is having cardiac tamponade caused by this clot. And it is possible to have cardiac tamponade from a clot. Mm -hmm. However, this is not very common. What would be common would be to have tamponade from fluid buildup. And fluid retention is something that can happen after surgeries. It also would be pretty common to have a blood clot that would lead to what we would call a reinfarction or a repeat episode of ischemia or lost perfusion to the heart. This is also something that is commonly seen after these surgeries, Mm -hmm. but actually having tamponade caused by the clot is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So this seemed to be a pretty strange situation and the mechanism by which this would have happened just didn't quite make sense with what they were telling us. Yeah, I agree. Next quick catch of sorts, and I will admit to you, this is another bit of a trick question, but when we see the team telling Izzy, you have to do something, you have to open his chest, Mm -hmm. and are basically telling Izzy that she is going to have to do this emergency procedure to remove the clot from his heart. We see her getting gowned up and getting gloves on, but we see her with no mask or goggles. Oof. Rough day. Rough day for Izzy Stevens. I know. Little bit of a trick question. Myth or medicine? I'm going to go ahead and say myth, because even if it is a high-intensity, fast-paced procedure, I feel like putting a mask on isn't that difficult. <laughs> but I would agree. I would knows? agree. I would probably call the mask myth. I think that it is very easy to get a mask on. The Mm -hmm. eye protection sometimes is not as readily available in every room, and it was probably more important for her to get into this patient than to find goggles. Yeah. She actually then says, and this is our final myth versus medicine question, when she is talking to the attendings after she did this procedure, Mm -hmm. 
And somebody said, why didn't you call me? Blah, blah, blah. And she says he was in PEA. There was no time. Myth versus medicine. That's medicine. That's medicine. So PEA stands for pulseless electrical activity. This means his heart was not beating. She did not have a choice but to open him up as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. The one contingency that we kind of talked about is somebody else in that room could have been calling the attending. And we see all this time, everybody's trying frantically to call Alex, whose pager is dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what would another intern add to this equation? Not much. Exactly. Like, why are you not calling one of the many attendings in the hospital? Why are you not calling Burke? Or even Bailey. Why are you not calling Bailey? Yeah, one of the more experienced people on the team. Correct. That feels like an easy page to send, and apparently nobody was alerted until they were all out of Annie's surgery. (laughs) Yes, and Izzy is all disheveled and comes up and Burke's like, what the heck? Why didn't you say anything? She says, well, I tried, Alex. I've cracked this patient's chest. I saved his life. I'm not going to answer to you type of thing. Honestly, from her perspective, she just performed this absolutely life-saving measure. I mean, she cut this patient's chest bedside, which is something that is not very common. Mm -hmm. She did it without an attending. She did it as an intern. She did it under a lot of stress. And honestly, it was really cool to see her even throw away the tools that she was using. She's like, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to go in with my hand and got the quad out and saved this person's life. Uh Uh-huh. But that was a great overview on the topic. And I honestly love the little myth versus medicine game that we played. We'll have to do this again. It was a good time. We will. And you guys will have to let us know if you enjoyed it as well, and we will continue to do it. Yeah, please. We want your feedback. So on that note, we see kind of these ethical issues with Izzy and her patient, but I want to talk about some of the many other ethical issues that we see in this episode. All right, which one do you want to start with? Because we have two big ones, the Meredith Derek Bailey situation and Annie, the tumor patient, and kind of all the things that surround that. I think let's just quickly touch on the whole situation with Meredith, Derek, and Bailey, because we've talked a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. But we just see Bailey in this episode being so bitter. Mm -hmm. She is yelling at Derek, who, as Derek reminds her, is her boss, putting Meredith down, insisting that Derek is giving Meredith preferential treatment, which, to be honest, the only time we really saw was like we talked about earlier, when Meredith answered the question correctly the way people had did many times before her. Yeah, and I feel like during this whole episode, too, this whole Bailey-Derek situation rubs off on Meredith and Derek's relationship because Derek just ends up being mean to Meredith at the end of the day. And Meredith is just doing her job, and she's trying to be as upfront about things as possible and telling Bailey, you know, I didn't know he was my boss when this first started Mm -hmm. and he's not giving me preferential treatment and I'm just trying to do my best and learn and be an intern like everyone else. I thought that everybody was being so unfair to her. I literally wrote in my notes, this poor woman did nothing wrong. I know, I know. Maybe you can make an argument that once she found out that Derek wasn't attending, that maybe it wasn't a great idea to keep seeing him. She tried. She did try. She absolutely tried. I think that Clearly, Meredith and Derek both wanted to be together. But Mm -hmm. for the first, you know, four or five episodes of this show, we see Derek asking her out again and again and again. And Mm -hmm. Meredith saying, you're my boss. You're my attending. I can't be seen with you. We can't do this. And now, of course, she finally does it. And she's the one who gets in trouble. Yes, exactly. I also thought just she, like, she when she approaches Bailey to have this conversation, too, after Bailey has been treating her like crap all day. I was going to say, in like, in a very appropriate, mature way. I feel like Uh she approached it really well. Uh huh. And Bailey basically says, you are affecting my day. The more you do this, the more it will affect my day. The fact that I'm even having this conversation with you means that you did something wrong and blah, 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 blah. You see this? What's happening right here? This is the problem with you sleeping with my boss. Not whether or not you knew him before, but how it affects my day. And me standing here talking to you about your sex life affects my day. And the longer this little fling goes on, the more favors you get over the others who are fighting tooth and nail just to make it through this program without any assistance. When those people start finding out what's going on and they don't want to work with you and talk to you or look at you and they start bitching and moaning at me, the more it affects my day. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, Meredith would not have needed to have this conversation with Bailey had Bailey not been treating her like crap all day. That's true. I wrote, maybe she wouldn't have to affect your day if you had treated her 
respectfully. Better. Yeah. Just the whole throwing thing. it out there. Just yeah, throwing it out you there. Know, you know, just that one little thing. Respect. <laughs> I also wanted to throw out that I thought that Christina was also extremely hypocritical throughout this episode, making comments about how Meredith is sleeping with an attending, oh, and yeah. Meredith is all stressed, and Christina's like, shut up. Christina! Missy! Literally doing the exact same thing, ma'am. What little extracurricular activity did you just get done doing before you started harassing Meredith? Can I quote her on that first? Christina says, that was definitely worth being late. And Burke, being the awkward man, he just goes, thanks. And then Burke goes, should we talk about this? And Christina goes, yeah, definitely. And then walks out of the room. Walks away. That was definitely worth being late. Thanks. Is this, uh, should we talk about this? Yeah, definitely. Burke in this episode was so clingy. Like, clingy, clingy, clingy with Christina. He's like, mm-hmm. can you talk about this? What is this? What are we doing here? So can you tell me what's happening? <laughs> it's so Christina funny. says no until there's a surgery she wants to get in on. And then she's Absolutely. like, hey, Burke. And Burke's like, I thought we weren't talking. Mm-hmm. Hypocritical. So the next topic that we're going to be talking about to finish up the ethics section of the episode is the tumor patient Annie that we see. Yes, this was a huge topic. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. So... I think to introduce, I just want to mention that the big recurring theme that stood out to me in this patient is just recognizing that there are a lot of barriers in place mm-hmm. that may prevent somebody from getting proper health care. Absolutely. And for whatever reason, all of the doctors in this hospital seems to be completely ignorant to this. Mm-hmm. And we're so disrespectful and frankly, just mean to this patient. Yeah, absolutely. And it really bothered me. And obviously, we'll get into this whole big thing with Alex. But I have written down here, Alex, Christina, Bailey, George, all of them making mm-hmm. really inappropriate comments. It's so inappropriate. Yeah. Actually, Derek was the winner this time. We he love was. Derek. We, he was. Derek replies and says, and I, I loved this comment. Derek says, people do things every day that they know could kill them. Doesn't mean they want to die. Yes. And this is, frankly, the same thing as somebody's dying of COPD and they don't stop smoking. smoking. Exactly. Right. They know that it's not the right choice for them. It doesn't mean that they have the capability or the desire to stop doing that thing. And for whatever reason, everybody seemed to think that this was different. Exactly. I don't really see how it's so different. And I don't think it is. I think that they were just kind of stuck in their own mindset and thinking this is the only possible explanation for why she hasn't come in sooner. And so when we're talking about the barriers to healthcare, it's very patient-specific why they may or may not want to come into the hospital. And we, as future doctors, want to be able to appreciate all the things that can lead to inability to get healthcare, to want to come to the hospital, to be able to get to the hospital. And so I think these are really important things to talk about. They're important both for treating existing patients as in the case of this patient Annie and having Mm -hmm. sensitivity and care for our patients. And it's also important in doing everything that we can to close these gaps. Because if you don't pay attention to the fact that these exist, people are going to continue to not get the care that they need. Yeah. And nothing's going to change. The first one I have on my list is what we see in this patient. And that is really just fear anxiety. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a little bit about this already, especially when it comes to surgery and these big medical procedures that this is not a normal thing for people to experience. And they can Mm -hmm. cause really debilitating fear and anxiety. A lot of people have fears of doctors, of medical procedures, of hospitals for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, we could unpack this for hours of all the reasons that people might be afraid of going to the doctor. Yeah, when George asks, why'd you let it get so bad? And she said, wow, you're the first to actually ask me. Which is wild, given that everybody behind her back is like, why would she do this? And nobody actually... Exactly. Asked her, why did you do this? She then confides in George that the reason that she's so afraid to go to the hospital is because everybody who she knows and who she has cared about, who has gone to the hospital in the past, has died. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, she is quite afraid of dying, unlike mm-hmm. what Bailey is saying. Yeah. And so, and in fact, this is the reason why she didn't go to the hospital. And this is so valid because, again, like we said, it's different for each person, but when someone has close family, friends that come to the hospital and have these awful experiences, I mean, it can really affect you and the way that you're viewing the medical care and the medical system for your own care in the future. Right. So I had as the next reason on my list in barriers to receiving healthcare as previous negative experiences. And this can be in yourself or it can be in family, friends, people that you know, people that you see on the news. 
Other negative experiences that are important to remember, especially when you are treating patients who fall into any minority group or any group that may have a history of facing discrimination or bias, that there are a lot of people who have had previous maltreatment by medical professionals who have faced discrimination and bias and microaggressions and macroaggressions, frankly, that will lead them to lose their trust in the medical system and not want to come to the hospital because they can't trust based on their previous experiences that they're going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And this is so sad because this is the complete opposite of what the people that are going through medicine envision the medical field to be. I mean, we all go into medicine because we want to help and take care of those that are in need. To see these people who have had bad experiences with medical professionals and institutions in the past and lose their faith in the medical community as a whole is just really sad to see because when the patients don't even want to come and see you in the first place, that becomes impossible. I actually just wrapped up an elective course that was about the complexities of healthcare for LGBTQIA plus individuals. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about some of these barriers in that a lot of these patients have had experiences where doctors have been judgmental of them, made Mm -hmm. assumptions about them, misgendered them, Mm -hmm. or even just point blank discriminated against them or refused to provide them necessary care because of their gender or sexuality. These individuals are at significantly higher risk than the average person of developing a serious health condition because they are less likely to go to the doctor with this past experience that they may have had. Exactly. And that kind of falls into one of the other reasons that people might not seek healthcare, and that's revolving around their cultural, religious, and social beliefs that they might hold. And so Mm -hmm. a a good example of this is, I think there's actually an episode in Grey's where they have a patient that comes in that doesn't really believe in modern medicine and Mm -hmm. has a shaman come in to do their healing ritual. When some of these patients come in and you offer them different treatments, it's really important for you to figure out what their goals of care are and what they are willing and not willing to do because you aren't going to go along with the treatment that the patient is not comfortable with. Right. And this ties right back to Meredith trying to force this man earlier to have this surgery. Exactly. And his belief was, okay, I have looked into this surgery. I know what it is. I've talked to all these people about it and I already know I don't want it. But she was still really pushing for the surgery to be done for him. And I think that there's a difference between this situation where this patient has been informed in detail about the surgery and is declining to have it because it is not what he wants. This is where patient education becomes really important because Mm -hmm. you don't want a patient to not get the care that they need because they may have had an upbringing different from yours such that their beliefs and or understanding of what you're trying to explain to them doesn't align. Exactly, exactly. I think another really big bucket of reasons that people are hesitant to come and seek care is the lack of access to it. This is, again, a really broad category that has lots of different pieces and parts that play into it. But one of the biggest things that I think of and that I think a lot of people think of in terms of lack of access is the financial ability or the insurance ability of someone to actually come and get the care that they need. Healthcare is expensive. Yes. I mean, even with insurance, it could be expensive. If you can imagine someone who doesn't have health insurance and they're going through some kind of sickness and they say, okay, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to get this treated, then they're going to be less likely to come and get that treated. Right. And then often that leads to it getting even worse. Exactly. This is such a common thing. I have had several friends, family members, people in my life say to me, yeah, I'm not feeling so well. I have XYZ symptoms, but my health insurance isn't renewed till next month, or I still have too much left in my deductible. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go to the doctor because I really can't afford that right now. Yeah. And a lot of them will say, you know, I've been waiting to actually see a doctor. It's been booked up. I can't actually see anyone. I can't get here in time. I don't have transportation. I live really far away. And those are Mm -hmm. also factors that lead to lack of access. Yeah, absolutely. And then one last one that I also wanted to touch on, which we saw in an earlier episode and talked quite a bit about, is language barriers and undocumented status. We saw this in an earlier episode when Izzy takes care of this Chinese patient who is not willing to come into the hospital even though she is in need of medical care because Mm -hmm. she's not documented. She's worried about being deported. She's worried about the legal implications of her being there. As a result, she's not able to get 
the quality medical care that she should. And on top of that, it took Izzy at least a few hours during her shift to actually realize that this patient was in need of care because she wasn't able to actually converse with the patient that did come into the hospital. Right. And that's where those language barriers come in. Definitely. Definitely. So let's talk about Annie. Please. Like we had kind of talked about, everyone's treating her really poorly. At first, I was really surprised. Alex was being so nice. And I said, oh my gosh, Alex is being nice? I think Meredith and Christina say that too. One of them was like, does he seem genuine? Have you ever seen Alex like that? He actually seemed sincere. Seemed being the operative word. He was on call last night when she came in. I am never leaving this place again. And then I said, oh, LOL, JK, just kidding. Not after the CT conversation where he did not know that the microphone in the CT machine was on and was talking crap about the patient. And she heard and obviously didn't trust him anymore, which I think is very fair and kicks him off her case. Yeah. And I wrote when I heard him say this, you don't even say stuff like this behind somebody's back. Even if you're not their doctor, just in terms of being a decent human being. Exactly. Whether somebody can hear you or not, you don't say things like this. Yeah. And then it just adds insult to injury that this is her doctor. He is her care provider and she trusts him and he is behind her back saying things like this. And that she has already had so much hesitation and anxiety surrounding coming into the hospital. And I feel like it almost reaffirms her decision of not wanting to come to the hospital because one, she was scared of dying, but two, that she was worried about what people were going to think when she did come. And we see in this episode that unfortunately, a lot of the doctors that were involved in her care did take this route of talking behind her back and not really paying attention to the quality of care that this patient should be receiving. It was really unacceptable. And I also noted this at the beginning of the episode because Bailey says to the group of interns before they walk into her room. You will not laugh, vomit, or drop your jaw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact that she even has to say this kind of blows my mind. It's and we've ridiculous. talked about this a few different times now on the podcast, but just the fact that it seems as if almost these interns didn't even go to medical school. Like this is their first day in the hospital. Like they have never interacted with a patient in their life or frankly, another human being in their life. Mm-hmm. Do they have no sense of professionalism? Yeah. So it's just honestly ridiculous. But I think it was a really good ethical topic to talk about because I feel like we see this a lot in Grey's Anatomy where they are really focused on the drama of the patient coming in. And obviously it's for a TV show, so we need to keep that in mind. But we also need to keep it in mind that this is the opposite of what medical care providers are really striving for when patients come into the hospital because we know that things like this exist. We know that fear and anxiety and barriers exist to patients getting health care and we want to take every step that we can to avoid any more harm or trauma being imposed on them. Yeah, and I have to say for all of the pretty fake appearing medicine that we call out in Grey's Anatomy. I do applaud the writers for bringing up a lot of really important issues that occur in healthcare that might Mm -hmm. not be talked about as much, such as these barriers to access. All right, so that wraps up our ethics. So we are going to end every episode like we always do with our relatable moments and end takeaways. Please, would you like to start? Sure. So this one was a goofy one. At the end of Annie's surgery, where Christina and George are tasked with retracting and lifting this tumor for hours and hours on end, we see Christina go back to the call room and just stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. And I cannot tell you how many times when I got home from surgery or even in between surgeries that I had to do, I would be doing stretches and people would look at me so weird. And I was like, you know, I just need, I need it. It makes me feel refreshed. So I think that was one of my biggest relatable moments <laughs> from the All show. All the stretches. Yes, yeah. One of my big relatable moments was Izzy sprinting around the hospital as her pager keeps on going off and mm-hmm. having nurses yelling at her. So-and-so needs you in this room. So-and-so needs you in this room. Her pager's beeping. She doesn't know where Alex is. It's pretty chaotic. Mm -hmm. And I think that the life of an intern on the floor was captured in a pretty hilariously accurate way in this episode where Izzy just has like 15 tasks that she has to do at once and all of her patients want her attention at once. And she's just, she's just running. Just chaos. Absolute chaos. But she does a pretty good job, especially given that Alex helps her not at all. Not at all. He is lounging around looking in the fun surgery that's happening down below. That he got kicked out of. But I think that another thing that goes along with Izzy's responsibilities on the floor is that she thought it was going to be a run-of-the-mill day where she would be checking on post-op labs and she would be working with patients to get new imaging, telling them about what the plan is for the day. And then she ends up having this 
kind of catastrophic event happened to one of her patients where she had to crack the chest and now all of a sudden she has this huge responsibility because she is the sole caretaker of this patient at the moment Mm -hmm. and I think that it really resonated with me because I think that when I got into medical school and then clinical year where we are assigned patients it really does feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders because you're in charge of making sure that this patient does well and although we do have supervision it still feels like a lot of responsibility and I can't even imagine what Izzy was feeling in this moment oh my gosh because she was not expecting it whatsoever. That's a great takeaway. The other one that I wanted to discuss was kind of on a positive note, despite the negative scenario, is when you have those moments where you meet a patient that you are really able to connect with and really Mm -hmm. able to open up to. Because generally... There are not a lot of scenarios that I think it would really be appropriate to share your personal life with a patient, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that they do this all the time on Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) And Meredith is talking to this woman who is the daughter of the Parkinson's patient. And she says something as she's trying to ask Meredith to convince her father to get the surgery. She says to Meredith, you just don't know what it's like. And Meredith looks at her and she says, I do. I do know what it's like. And this honestly, this moment made me tear up watching them because Meredith doesn't really even need to say more than that and get too into her personal life. And I thought that she handled this appropriately. She and this patient just shared this moment where I think that they felt very understood by each other. Mm -hmm. And for as much as doctors are there to take care of their patients and the families, you do sometimes have these moments that a patient just really impacts you and you impact them. And these moments are, I think, really what make medicine worthwhile for me. Definitely. I love that. And I love what you said about just meeting that patient. You have that connection and it really is what makes what we do so rewarding it is it is it's a privilege it is it is all right well i think that wraps it up for our relatable moments and takeaways and episode six yes thanks for joining us i cannot believe we're already six episodes in and we cannot wait to record more and bring them to you guys yeah we'll see you next time all right everyone stay warm stay warm thank you so much for joining us for this episode We hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine. If you're curious about where we're getting our information, you can check out our sources in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, subscribe to our email list, and make a donation. We appreciate your support, and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.